All right. Yo, this is Alexander Anderson coming to you with another edition of the AA on the Beat podcast. Today, I'm in the home of a good friend of mine, um, wonderful musician, and a badass cat who has explored a lot of different um, things musically in his long career here in L.A., and um, and a collaborator of the bassist Buell Nedlinger and many other great musicians that we'll get into. Marty Crystal on the saxophone. Marty Crystal. So Here I am. He's here. We're going to get this set up and uh, we're doing this impromptu recording this on my phone. So excuse any poor audio quality, but um, we're just hanging out. We just had a session. We have these every week or so. Just come by and play some tunes. Today we had Will Lyle on the bass and the wonderful Fritz Wise on the drums. And um, thank you for having us at your at your home, Marty. Always welcome. Everybody that wants to play is always welcome in Mid-City, in Harvard Heights. Yo. Yeah, I, I was very lucky to play with great bass players. Uh, Buell Neinlinger, who I had an association with for, oh man, what was it, 40 years? Mm. <laughs> Let's see, uh, 80, 90, 2000, uh, 30 plus. And uh, Charlie Hayden, I got to be in his Liberation wow. Orchestra. Uh, West, the, the, the Liberation Orchestra West, West Coast one. And uh, Jaco Pastorius, when he came mm-hmm. to town, I got to play with him. So and, we're, what, what, we're going to get into all these. I'm sorry. So keep going. Mm-hmm. Keep going. I know that another. Well, I chanted for a bass player. See, I was like 17. I was in a Nishran Shoshu, which is like a Buddhist right, right, religion. Right. And uh, I was I'm chanting. I'm part of that. Nishran Buddhism? Yeah, Nishran yes, Buddhism. Yes, I was I chanting for a bass too. player. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. So, a year, I was. I said, I gotta find a bass player because I was into classical music as well as I was into avant-garde music, but in both genres. Like, I, because my father put a, a speaker in my room when I was, you know, I don't know, seven or eight years old, and he played the radio late at night. They played the freaky music, you know, Messiaen and uh, the avant-garde guys, Veressa and mm-hmm. Anton Webern and. You know, the modern music they play at night. So I got into that because it was scary. I like being scared. Mm. It's like horror movie music. Right, right, know? right. So the the music kind of painted that, that picture. Sci-fi music. Right. So when I heard Sun Ra, it made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, this guy's improvising that or he's writing and improvising it. Mm-hmm. And he has musicians that are they're reading music and they're... And that's where it's at. You know. Improvising. And I discovered Coltrane when I, I don't know, when I first heard him, I didn't, uh, he was too advanced. I couldn't understand him. I was in, just got into high school or junior high. And mm-hmm. I, his tone was harsh on the soprano. I didn't get it. But then the by the time I was 17, like I saw the light. It was the same with me. It was the same with me. I remember listening to A Love Supreme while I was skateboarding in my driveway. And I listened to the whole thing because I knew it was important. It was weird. Like I didn't, I didn't know why, 
I didn't know anything about the album. I but for some reason, I, I when I got the album on my phone, I was like, "This is an important album. This is like I, you can tell from the cover. It's almost like like a well, that was like a, a spirit- it's like a, it's like a religious or a spiritual album. It's a spiritual from the cover. You can you see hear. it's yeah. like this is important. He's telling he's sharing something important on this on this album. And I listened to it, and I remember it completely went over my head. I didn't the first time I heard, it, I was like, "I don't, I don't get it." I was just like, "I don't get it." Like I listened to the whole thing, but I was like, "I don't understand what's going on here." And then eventually, after the second time, third time hearing it, it was like, "This is a spiritual message." Well, we we used like, to have he's, parties. He's, he's delivering a spiritual message. Yeah, when I heard it, I'd invite my friends over, and we listened to it, and it was like. Nobody said a word. We just listened to it, and our minds are blown. Elvin Jones, what he was doing on that record, and Jimmy Garrison. We never heard anything like that, ever. So it kind of blew our minds. It was like a... I don't think anyone heard anything <laughs> like that, ever. <laughs> like, it was like... That album is, I mean, just the way the rhythm section anyway, is... Anyway, so is I was crazy. chanting for a bass player that could play like that. Okay, right. And right, also right. a legit bass player, because I was still a classical musician that I could... There was a symphonically trained one. Because the guys in L.A., the bass players in L.A., they were not symphony trained. If they were, they played with the L.A. Phil. You know, there weren't any bass, like all-around bass players that could Do really play great with also, the bow. Right. That were, you know, right. really great arco players. So That's what you're looking for. I was looking for a guy like that. Yeah, and then You're he looking came, for the one in a million. Right, and that's right. And then he was playing at a birthday party and a drummer who was macrobiotic, because I was into the macrobiotic community then uh, because the, the the head of macrobiotics Michio Kushi he had the Kushi house and my roommate was in the macrobiotics so the, when a drummer from Boston came down here and I was playing with him he called me up and he said hey my friend Buell Neidlinger from Boston has just moved to town he's playing this jam so that's how I met him hmm. and he was always looking for a far out avant-garde sax player Mm-hmm. Wherever he was, he found them, and he mm-hmm. would find the most way out guys. And so when you two met, it was just like the perfect meeting. Right. So I that's it. I got him. When, then, when, when was that? What, that was 1970. I was 19. 1970, you met. That's when mm-hmm. you started playing with him. Okay. And then I, I, I met my first professional, successful professional musician. I never met anybody like him. That made a living playing. I mean, at that mm-hmm. point in my life, I didn't really, mm-hmm. you know, I was just playing with guys in Venice at jam sessions, and everybody was scuffling. But it didn't matter because rent was so cheap and it, the economy was so strong that you didn't really have to work and you could still pay the rent somehow, give a few lessons or paint a house or do something to pay the rent. It wasn't wasn't any big deal. Like, you didn't have to make 19, a lot of money. 1970 in Los Angeles. Yeah, gas was 25 cents a gallon. You know, you could go to the best seafood restaurant for two and pay $12 with wine, even. You know, you didn't have to make much. Completely different time. For someone yeah, like so, me, born in 93, <laughs> it's really hard to even picture that. It's, but. Yeah, there was no pressure. I you know, I mean. I went to UCLA. It was a lot less populated. Yeah, I went to school at UCLA, and, the, and it was $150 a quarter for all my classes. Hmm. So it's not like there was any stress. I dropped out to work, and people needed musicians then. So, 
you know, there were a lot of bars and clubs and they needed players. Like there weren't enough players. Can you imagine that? Not enough musicians. So that even a guy that didn't, you wasn't know, a that, young wasn't kid. Wasn't great. Yeah, just a, a young kid starting out. You could get a $50. And I, I had those gigs, but they weren't, they were all gigs I had to create and that were basically didn't pay much or if anything in San Diego. Yeah, I never They're had to ask anybody. Different. The phone would just ring and says, hey, do you want to, they need a sax player at this club, you know. Uh, the phone would always ring. Mm-hmm. And all I had to do was organize jam sessions because I was trying to learn how to play. So I'd have jam sessions every day, two of them a day, actually. From 11 to 1 was one rhythm section. Then from 1 to 3, a new rhythm section would come in. And everybody wanted to play. And they'd drive from all over, South Central, Burbank, just all over the city. I'd get players, R&B players, jazz players. And uh, they were looking for somewhere to play to, so they could practice, you know. And some really good musicians came by. And this went on for years. And then I learned how to play. It took me a couple of years. In the meantime, I was working. So, just to go back. So, you met Buell in 1970. Yeah, here was a guy that he'd already been in the Boston Symphony for three years. He'd already played with Billie Holiday and Ben Webster and all my heroes. Played Cecil Taylor, all the guys I'm that I wanted to play like. Mm-hmm. And he played with them all. Sonny Rollins. Mm-hmm. All of them. Stan Getz. He recorded uh, with Tony Bennett. So He what went did, on the road with Tony Bennett. So and, what what types of stuff was he telling you? And well, he was... An I mean, because he was obviously coming from this place of been well, he, there, done that. And he, you were young and coming up. So how did he kind of show you how to develop your sound or well you know. no, he was in a movement a radical rebellion with Cecil Taylor you know mm-hmm. he didn't want to play bebop he wanted to put on jazz he wanted to make fun of it he wanted to play something that was way out but was mimicking jazz kind of you know mm-hmm. like theater music almost he'd write some mm-hmm. melodies out and we'd play them and then we'd go free you know Mm-hmm. And he'd like he wrote a tune called Narcotics, that was about a, cir- a circle of fifths. It was like junkies getting strung out, and then they were looking for their fix, and then they make their connection, and then there was a new section where they'd shoot up and they'd bliss out, get real high, and mm-hmm. that and you know he'd do all these effects, kind of like modern music from Boulez, and because he played all that stuff too, and so did I. We were into real modern way out shit, written out, mm-hmm. you know. So was, he was making fun. It was everything was like fun, you know. Other groups were not doing. But then you guys like also that. played like monk tunes and conventional. But not at first. Stuff. At first, we were just playing way out, mm-hmm. and we'd get concerts. And you could actually organize your own concert. You could go up to a place that everybody had money. You go to any school, any college, and say, "Here's my tape." We want to give a concert, and you could make a hundred bucks each or fifty bucks each, even back then, mm-hmm. and play way out, play whatever you wanted, and you could work. I've done that a few times, but it's uh, yeah, it's, I don't really organize that type of thing. But I, I feel like those type some of those opportunities are still available at, at certain schools and universities. I just feel like yeah, yeah, we had a we had an agent, and we went to did European tours. People wanted monk. And Buell had played with Monk when uh, Wilbur Ware wasn't around. And 
the, the Baroness would call him up, you know, the Baroness, mm -hmm. Nika. Mm -hmm. That's you know, her name? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Monk would be staying with her, and she'd call up people and say, uh, Wilbur didn't show up, can you, I'll give you 50 bucks to come over on a cab, and cab fare. And that was a lot of money in 1958. 50 bucks? That was like more than you'd make a night working all night. Mm -hmm. But she was rich, and so Buell would come over and they'd rehearse. He, that's how he learned Monk's music because Monk played his tunes over and over and over again. That's all he did. They played the melody for three hours. They were learning, want to learn a new tune? Here it is. Monk would play and everybody would play the melody over and over and over again until they all learned it. That sounds like a fun rehearsal, right? It sounds like a dream, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds, sounds but nobody else was playing Monk's music in the 80s. Everybody around L.A. was playing standards and Chick Corea tunes and, you know, fusion. And they wanted to be hip and get work, you know. See, me, I didn't ever want to get work. That's what's so funny about it. I was a professional musician and I had a pretty good career and I never tried to get any work. I didn't really, I just wanted to play the music. Mm. But when I had kids, I got in, in the clarinet section in the studios, and they were still hiring doublers. So I broke in as a doubler, but even then that all changed, and everything was like second clarinet in the orchestra. Bass clarinet, contrabass clarinet. So I was lucky enough to do film work and get a medical plan, but in the meantime, I'd be practicing Herbie Nichols and Monk and my own music, and we'd be recording, and that's another thing. When I started my record label in 1979, by 1983, we made our third record. Buell was paying for it all because he was rich. That, no, guy was a, that guy was a maniac. He was working like day and night. He was doing triple sessions every day. He was like a working fool. The guy was making a fortune. What was your um, but, sorry, record label called again? Uh, K2B2. K2B2, right. Still in business. And so... We'd hire Billy Higgins or Peter Erskine and or Peter would come go in on it with us. And we had a group. and But the thing is, if you had a record label, uh, there was a convention, the Record Distributors Association of America or something. And then all the distributors would all meet at a convention. And there was one in San Francisco and we drove up and I had a little, you know, portable cassette and played the tunes and people loved it. And uh, they'd come up and say, I could sell, I could, I could take 500 of those. i say, okay. So he, I'd write him out an invoice and he'd give me a check for 500 bucks right there. Mm. And then another distributor on the West Coast, the East Coast, Midwest, there were like four or five people. They ordered 500 records each. I could sell 2,000 records well, in a weekend. You're selling for a dollar each to the wholesale? I don't even remember. Something like that? I don't even remember. I think they sold for three ninety eight retail and yeah, dollar ninety eight wholesale. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it cost uh, you know four hundred bucks to make a record, something like that. It, was, it wasn't expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you press a uh, thousand, and it was like a grand. You know, and fifteen hundred bucks. I made two grand in a weekend. You can actually make money selling records because there weren't enough modern jazz records. How, isn't that something? How does that sound insane? I mean, you know, you have these pop records, right? You have jazz audience, 
And they go to the record store, they want something wild and way out like I did, right? You know, Billy Higgins, Buell Neilinger, this new guy, Marty Crystal, a trumpet player, Warren Gale, or... And they thought, Billy oh, Higgins was on the records too? The first one. Okay. And it got we got a downbeat review, and everybody liked it. We got reviews, press, and... So how did you meet uh, Billy Higgins? Like, was it around this time? Well, Buell and Billy worked hundreds of sessions I'm in, sure in New did. York. So Buell, I'm sure they did. he said, man, let's let's make a record label, and we'll, I can get Billy Higgins. He'll do it. And let's let's record these tunes. So we went to the studio, and and Billy was we had these weird tunes, you know, that were difficult. And I, I was saying, how's how's the drummer going to learn these tunes without a rehearsal? You know, we booked the studio for four <laughs> hours. We're going to make a record. How's this going to happen? And he realized it was the most recorded drummer of all time. Well, I knew I saw I knew who he was. I got all his records, uh -huh. but I didn't think this was something else. This wasn't like Horace Silver, right? Where right. they're playing thirty two bar tunes and the you can, you know, mm -hmm. and they had rehearsals at Bluno. They, they'd spend a whole day rehearsing and get paid. Then they'd go make the record, mm -hmm. right? But so so we get there, you know, and Buell's lighting up his weed, you know, and, and Billy's set up. Speaking, and, speaking of which, can we get one more? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, uh, so Billy's setting up. Yeah, Billy's, so we set up and, and the mic guy's setting up the mics and Buell says, Okay, Billy, this tune goes like this. Boom, 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 boom. And then the bridge. He's singing it to him? He's playing it on the bass. He's playing it on the bass. And he goes, and then we got the, this is like Night in Tunisia, but then we got the, we play the break every time. And he says, you got it? And Billy says, yeah. And Billy says, okay, let's take one. That tune was called Modern Jizz. That was Buell and I wrote it together. He came up with the title, of course. So we did it in one take, and Billy was just like he'd been playing it all his life. There was like nothing to it. Burning. And then he says, Okay, that's good. Let's go on to the next tune. And the same thing. You know, and these are tunes I've been spending hours and hours practicing because it was. And like, what was his first record called? Uh, Ready for the '90s. By Buell and Edgar. It was by Crystal Clear and the Buells. By Crystal Clear and the Buells. That was our group. Okay. And that was our record label, Crystal Clear and the Buells. K two B two, K squared B log. If you're into mathematics. Okay. All right. So you guys could check out that record to hear what he's. No, about. that's not even in print anymore. It's, it's but it is on it is on k2b2.com. You can find a. It's reissued under Rearview Mirror. Okay. So that so you met Billy Higgins at that session mm -hmm. in the in the studio. Yeah. What was that like? Because I mean, he was such a big figure in L.A. when he was here, right? He had at the world stage, right? And he was like the man. He was, you know. Yeah, but you know, I never, I never met him before. Right. Uh, so I'm just, I'm asking you, what was it like meeting him? And it was. Like, I was too busy. I, mean? I was too busy. I had to. You don't remember? I had to teach a trumpet player the music because oh, he came from San so Francisco. You, it was a, it, yeah. So oh, I was okay. I was spending about two or three days teaching him the music, and then we got to the studio and we played. And then Billy got bugged at me because I didn't give him a record, but I didn't see him, and I was busy, and I. I met, I screwed up. I should have mailed him a record when it came out. Oh. And he saw me. He says, "What happened to that record we made?" And I said, "Oh, I didn't send you any." He got he got mad. Mm. That was at the comeback <laughs> in. Charlie Hayden called me up and said, "Hey man, 
can you come over to the comeback in and sit in and play with Billy Higgins? And I said, sure. And uh, I think Milcho Levia was the pianist. And uh, so I came in and uh, and that's when Billy says, where's that, what happened to that record? And I said, oh yeah, it did good. He was mad because he liked that record. Anyway, I was playing, I was playing uh, uh, Well You Needn't and uh, I started to go way out, you know. I was coming from a theater job. I was in my tuxedo. I was doing a show downtown, fiddle around the roof or something. And I came back after that let out and I started, I was really itching to play because mm -hmm. there were these you're best... You're playing all the theater music and you're coming to play Charlie Hayden and Billy Higgins. Yeah, I said, man. ultimate rhythm section. And we're playing uh, Well You Needn't, are you kidding? So, you so I, I took off, chicken. you know, and then I'm blowing this furious solo. And be, whenever <laughs> Billy's playing, it's like you get inspired to, you know, you play <laughs> you shit you never played. We'll just... <laughs> the first time I played with him, I was like, I was playing when I was practicing, but somehow it was okay. When I was practicing it, I was never that, you know, it wasn't it complete. Felt right. It felt right. It was okay when I was practicing. I was working out stuff. But all of a sudden, I'm playing my material that I've been working on, and now it's got this ears underneath it. He's hearing everything I'm playing and copying it, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like fantastic. So I got all crazy. I was blowing, and then Charlie comes up to me during my solo. He stops playing the bass. He walks up to me and whispers in my ear, Play soft bebop. Charlie? <laughs> Play soft bebop. I was like, what the fuck? What does that mean? What's soft bebop? What I guess I was I, way too I, intense for him. I know what Charlie meant by that. <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what he meant. And I, and I already can picture the scene of you just... So after going we finished, off to the whales, trying to be like the next Albert Eiler over exactly. here, and him just wanting to be like, you know what? Let's just show people who may not know the song how the actual song goes, and I understand that. I can understand. But you know, the thing is, see, in his band, Ernie Watts and I would play like way out, as way out as we could get. We'd have tenor in, battles. In the Liberation, yeah, in the Liberation Orchestra, everything was. That's how we played, and so here was, you know. Charlie Hayden, he, you know, he's the most out musician I ever worked with. But that's what makes... Except for Buell. But here's the thing, though. Well, I think what makes people out is uh, is really understanding what is in and not doing that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, anyway, <laughs> after, after the set, I said, Charlie, uh, who's your favorite tenor player? And he goes, Hank Mobley. And that surprised me. You know, Hank Mobley. Is that, is that really surprising? That surprised me. Because he was always hiring modernists. And Hank Mobley was a traditional bebopper. I think Charlie... Hayden and I think that's how he wanted me to play. Charlie Hayden was a traditional bebopper. I just think that because of the... No, era, I mean Hank Mobley was. I, I know, but I'm saying I think Charlie Hayden was also, but he just was part of the era of revolution. No, 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 no. No? Charlie Hayden okay. was a child singer. Have you heard... You know Charlie okay, Hayden had me, a family band... From Oklahoma or Missouri, he was from Missouri, and he had an all family, a family band that sang, you know, hillbilly music. I didn't know that. I and he was a child star when he was three. He was a little tiny kid singing lead, and they were on the radio, and they they were a working band. And then in his teenage years, he had uh, polio, and it hit his voice, and that's why he always talked like that. 
He, you know, he never, his voice was damaged, his voice box. Mm. He goes, hey, man. He always had this, he had this high voice. He never spoke normal like a normal voice. It was always strange. And he had to give up singing. Then he took up the bass, and then he got in. But then right after that, he met Ornette Coleman. So he didn't really have time to be a, a bebopper because early in his career, he met Ornette. And they were playing way out, you know, that's the most out music, right? Ornette Coleman and Don Sherry, come on. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like it is, but I also feel like it's rooted in, like, essentially just, like, the blues, what Ornette is doing. When I listen to it, it's like, this, the forms are unusual, you know, and obviously he plays freely a lot. But even when he plays freely, it's like, I hear a lot of blues and soul, R&B type stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just really... Well, the way Buell put it... stuff, just not organized in the same way as traditional bebop. But go ahead, you tell me. Well, Buell know. met Charlie when they came... Buell was working with Cecil Taylor, and they became famous at the Five Spot. And everybody and all the artists, and everybody came to the Five Spot, and Cecil was there for years. The Five Spot in New York. Yeah. Just for... And Buell lived in a loft about two blocks away from the club. And Herbie Nichols would come by and they'd play music. And he and Steve Lacey was his roommate. He got the place from Roswell Rudd when Roswell left. Anyway, so he was playing with the Jimmy Jufri trio with Jimmy Jufri and Billy Osborne on drums. He discovered Billy Osborne and brought him to New York when he was 16. So... Every Billy Osborne was like the most, he was the greatest drummer ever. He was like a Tony Williams kind of. He was like unbelievable. And everybody wanted to hire him, including Miles, Coltrane. Everybody offered Billy a job. And then Billy, Billy turned him down. He was in New York? Yeah. Billy Osborne. But he was too young and he didn't, he didn't have anybody except Buell to watch over him. And Buell was working day and night, you know, so he got left to his own devices and fell into drugs and screwed up and ended up going to Lexington prison where Elvin Jones was doing time for heroin. And that's where he got his musical education, Billy Osborne. All the greatest musicians were locked up in the joint for drugs. And they had a big band, the most incredible big band that was never recorded. Elvin Jones was there and man, everybody. I mean, all the great... I never heard that. Yeah, people that did time. Art Blakey, I think, was there too. The greatest drummers in the world in prison. In New York. Yeah, for around, not forever, but for right, a year. At some time, at some time. And when Elvin got out, he went to work, like he did that work with Sonny Rollins, Night of the Village Vanguard, 1959. Mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. That was after? That yeah. was when Elvin, right after that, Elvin got busted. Oh. And then Coltrane was waiting for him to come out of prison. And he wanted Billy, and Billy Osborne could do a drum like that. So Train offered the job to Billy, and Billy turned him down. And Miles, and he turned down Miles too. Why? And then Elvin got Why? out, and then Coltrane hired him. Why did Billy turn him down? He was messed up. He wasn't. He was only place. a teenager. Mm -hmm. And so was Tony. He was from Rhode Island, from Princeton. Really not Princeton. Did he have uh, any like, Providence recordings out there? From Providence. Did he do any recordings? No, he did recording with LTD with his brother Jeffrey Osborne. 
Jeffrey was a big star. But before that, they had LTD, Love, Tenderness, and Devotion. And Billy was a keyboard player. You can play like Ray Charles. He ended up writing with Ray Charles for the last 15 years of Ray's life. They wrote songs mm -hmm. together and mm -hmm. and they recorded at Ray's studio right down the street here. Wait, so who's the same Billy you told me about? He, he lives in L.A. now? Yeah, he's been living in L.A. forever. Right, so you're, you're going to introduce me eventually. Yeah, yeah. We, we were in That's the group Thelonious. So this is Billy Osborne. We I were know. playing Buell and I. Buell introduced me to Billy. Uh -huh. So yeah. he's playing drums on these recordings with you guys? or uh, Some of them. Okay. Yeah, Thelonious Atmosphere is one. He went, we went to Italy and we played uh, with that weird string, Buellgrass, which was mandolin, uh, violin, Brenton Banks played. Uh, it was like violin, mandolin, sax, bass, and drums. We played Ellington and Monk. Everybody loved that band. We were working every week for, oh man, 20 years. It was the longest running jazz gig ever. And we were working all over town in two bands. And then all these musicians, all these club owners wanted us. It's kind of hard to believe now. I didn't, I didn't, again, I didn't have to do any hustling. Or, I just get calls from the club owners. Can you come in and do a weekend here? And Every couple of weeks you're working. There were about 10 clubs, of, 10 or 12 clubs in L.A. And we worked about four or five of them that advertised in the L.A. Times. Catalina Bar and Grill. Mm -hmm. Alley Cat Bistro. Um, then we had an Ethiopian restaurant. We worked at every weekend for six months in uh, Santa Monica. All we did is play Monk. It was it was amazing. It took you far. Mm -hmm. Let me let me ask you this. It goes to go back. How did you very first get introduced to Charlie Hayden? Somebody we recommended talked about him, but for, for, forgot to ask how you. Got I don't. I don't know. Somebody recommend as the, the whatever would always happen to me was that someone would call me. I'd be recommended. I had a reputation, but I didn't think I had a reputation. I figured like I was scuffling and I was never going to make it. And all these other and people you, and you're continually getting called for all these kids. Yeah, I'm getting the <laughs> getting called, and I never knew why. You know, usually in life, something will happen and you'll find out something eventually. You'll find out why did I why was I on this gig, and I never found out. On all my jobs, I never really knew why. I mean, Frank Zappa told me why. Oh why. yeah, I wanted to get. To yeah, me. Frank Zappa called me up and said, "Can you do a record date?" Well, first so he wanted. Okay, so let's just set the time frame here. First of all, because I love Frank Zappa, so I have to just take a moment. What do you remember? What year it was? What time? Yeah, see, this was, there was a, a series at uh, on Slauson Avenue in this theater called Studio Z. Now his studio. Hmm? That was his studio, right? No, 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 no. This is Th this was okay. a concert series, uh, the Art Ensemble of Chicago. Right. Okay. Lester Bowie and Joseph Jarman, who just rest in peace, a couple of days ago. He just passed, right? And. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Roscoe Mitchell, who's also left us, and Don Moye, the drummer, he's still around, and uh, Malachi Favors, and uh, the bass player. And they, we went to their gig, they had a gig, and we, and it was great, you know. I said, yeah, these guys are doing what we're doing. And we had a band where my wife, we were newlyweds, 
and she she was used to be my flute student. That's how we met. My wife Trinidad, and she was playing soprano sax, and I just gave her a soprano sax and said, "Here, here's a mouthpiece and a reed. You know, blow into this." And she was a natural, maybe because she's a native. I don't know. She was also a good drummer. She, anyway, natural talent, and she just played the soprano saxophone. I loved it. I mean, not because she was my wife, but because she was, she just like wiggle her fingers and blow and this crazy music would come out. Like way out stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. But she could play in tune and everything. I was amazed. So I said, and Buell heard it. And Buell's wife was drumming, who's kind of the same kind of drummer. She did, couldn't play time, but she could play way out, you know. She could play like... Um, Rashid Ali kind of, you know, that kind of style. Mm -hmm. And and the way we were playing and the weird music we were playing, it worked. And Buell was like laying down the foundation. So the time was there. You didn't need the drummer to play the time. Mm -hmm. So me and Buell would play the time and the drummer would play free. See, anyway, we had this R&B group with the trumpet trending to me on saxes and we were playing funk, but we were playing way out music <laughs> over it. And we'd, we were playing at this concert, and Frank Kurt Zappa heard it on the radio, because it was live from Studio Z. Mm -hmm. And that's why he called me. He heard me playing this way out, 14-bar blues that I wrote, called Igor's Blues. And it was like Stravinsky. If Stravinsky played the blues, I, it was kind of like right, right, that right. kind of music. I think we played that tune. Yeah, we played it. So okay. It's got part of the Firebird suite in it. So he heard you playing. He heard that and called, called me up and said, "I want you to audition for my band. I heard you on Studio Z." You remember what year? What did we? Nineteen seventy-seven. Okay, mid seventies. So he's. Yeah, we were maybe at the end of seventy-six. So he's in the mid of his, of his. Uh, I don't even know what to call it, but his like. His run. He's he's a he's a. At he's this point, famous. He's, famous. By yeah, he's a celebrity yeah. at this point. He's yeah. like. One of the bigger acts, I imagine. He's on MTV. He's oh like, yeah, he had his own studio on La Brea Avenue yeah. just to rehearsing. He had been on a world tour. Yeah. Like he's at this point, Frank Zapp was already. Yeah, you know, you've made it when, you, when you're renting a studio for rehearsals. You're like me, guys come to my house and we rehearse for a gig. You know, Frank has a studio on La Brea in a high rent district. You know, La Brea and Sixth Street or something. You know, I think he was signed to Warner Brothers at this time. Maybe seventy six is when he came. I think when he came out with this album, the first of the series of albums that would come. I out I think he just Brothers. created his own label then. I think. Well, but then it was. Then it must have been at the pumpkin, end of, of his barking label. pumpkin or something. If so, then then this is at the end of his one. Yeah, label. this. Yeah, when I recorded with him, I think it was for Barking Pumpkin, his own label, and we got in a dispute. So okay, so now right, so he called you. What does he say to you? How does the telephone come? He said, "Yeah, he says, Can I want you to. Hello, I want this? you. Hi, this is he says, this Zappa. is Frank Zappa. I want you to audition for my band. I want. We're, I'm going on tour next week, and I want a horn section. And the other two horn players are coming from San Francisco. And I said, Great, I'd love to do it. And he says, Well, come on over at eight o'clock tonight. And they're coming over, and we, you know, I said, Okay, last minute. So yeah, so I show up, and the horn players aren't there. His band is there, Terry Bozio, and mm -hmm. I can't remember the bass player. Was it player. Duke? Was it... Um, the, the, the guitar player was Ve, uh, Steve Vai. Steve Vai. Vai. So these are... Steve Vai was like 18. These are now like giant musicians. Right. 
Steve Vai, Terry Bozio. The bass player, I, I can't the remember. The bass player was... Um, man, I can't... Man from Utopia, around the, right before then. Oh, man, I can't... The I can't, band, right before Man from Utopia. Is killer. Anyway, whoever it was... Frank Frank was a like great base, a great bass player. Frank Whoever told me he was he had his shit together. He did. So <laughs> Frank told me to bring all my horns, right? So he was auditioning me, you know, see if I could read music. So he put a guitar part in front of me and he says, "Play this on the alto flute." And I said, "Oh, okay, sure." You know, the alto flute's in G, and the guitar parts are in concert. Mm-hmm. So I had to transpose the parts. And the parts are a bitch. I mean, it's the hardest music I've ever seen. Yeah, I've seen some of his music. It's you know, it's like ants crawled, uh, ran over some ink and crawled around a piece of paper and had an orgy, you know. There's billions of notes. And I'm like, bop, it's real hard. And I'm playing on the alto flute. And I'm nailing it, you know, because I'm psyched. I said, yeah, I want, this is some money. And I'm broke. I'm starving. My wife, I'm newlywed, and we're barely paying the rent, and... I don't have any gigs. It was like really a lean. Like, the first time I was really broke in my life. I mean, I was working since I was 10 years old doing a paper route. I always had money. And the economy was always good. Well, now it's not so good. I'm living on the west side. My rent's 500 a month. And, you know, I'm barely making it. I'm teaching so students. You this opportunity, you feel like you got to nail this and you're... Yeah, so I... He says, I'll play this on the bass clarinet. Okay, you know, uh, play this on the altos, the baritone sax, alto sax, piccolo, really? you know, clarinet. So you had, you play and, all these different instruments. I had my whole, I brought everything with me. And he goes, wow. And so he says, oh, let's play some blues in D flat. I go, okay. So we're playing, we played the blues for like 20 minutes. It was fan- amazing. <laughs> Frank was just, we were just blowing for, I don't Man, know how long. I really like his guitar playing. Yeah, he was great. He was really cooking. So you jammed out with Frank Zappa, yeah. Terry Bozio, and I, meanwhile, so you know, I got there at like eight o'clock, and now it was like one in the morning. Uh-huh. I didn't even have a break. <laughs> I didn't even take a break. So at this point, you pretty much you probably pass. Yeah, but uh, so, so you're then jamming he's, out, and then and then what happens? So he says all the blues. So then Frank says you he says uh, you just won the award, and I said what award? He says your sight reading award. You're the Best I've ever seen at sight reading my music. Nobody comes close. <laughs> I say, great, when do we that's, leave? That's a pretty heavy compliment. I say, when do we leave? And he goes, well, the other horn players didn't show up. So what happened was the horn players showed up and they couldn't even read music. They were complete right, numbskulls. Right, right. They were the worst trumpet and trombone player I ever saw from San Francisco. What's wrong with it? What's Frank thinking? I mean, all the great horn players in L.A. And he has someone drive from San Francisco and they're late. And they show up at like at two thirty in the morning, and they can't play. Uh-huh. They try to get the music in front of them. They can't play the chart. And that's when Frank says, "You've won the award for the sight reading award." Uh-huh. And I say, "When do we leave?" And he says, "Well, the horns didn't work out. I'm not going to take horns." I said, "Well, I'll go." He goes, "Yeah, I wanted a horn section." I say, "Okay." But then he called me for a record date when he got back. Okay. To bring everything. So and that was saying, the first. That was Man from Utopia. He went. Okay. Yeah, that's when, uh, you know, he called me up and tried to, uh, you know, get me down in price. He wanted to, he didn't want to pay me that much. In other words. For all the doubling. And he said, well, how much do you charge? I go, whatever, whatever union scale is, you know. 
I charge scale, which is double if you're doing a solo on a record and you're alone. It's just you overdubbing. That's double scale. That's what the union rule is. If you're just alone in the room playing, mm -hmm. that's double scale. So whatever scale was, I was fine with it. I wasn't going to charge him any more, you know. But he wanted to charge. He wanted me to charge him less. He says, look, man, I want you to overdub and bring all your horns, but I don't want to pay for overtracking. There's a union rule that says if you replace three musicians and you lay down all the parts three musicians would lay down, you got to pay three checks. Because mm -hmm. otherwise everybody would be out of work and just one guy would do all the work and overdub all night. Mm -hmm. Instead of hiring a section and writing music out, or at least... But I said, okay, because I was stupid and young and desperate... I'm starving. I said, okay, look. He said, I don't want to pay 100% every time you overtrack another part. I said, well, let's call it a double, meaning 15% more each time I do it. And I figured, well, I'll do it five or six times. I'll make at least double scale. I'll probably make triple scale. And I'll make 1800 bucks or whatever for the night. And that's a fortune. And I'll be cool. And I'll do... And, I, and it's better than him paying $3,000... I'm cutting his bill in half, giving him a good deal, even though it's against the union rules and I'm not allowed to do that. I was, I wanted to keep the gig, mm -hmm. see. Makes sense, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're trying to work with him. Right. So anyway, I, he keeps me till three in the morning and I, I lay down tracks on all my instruments and lay down a whole sax section on Man From Utah with some tune. And uh, anyway, the, the engineer couldn't overdub these 30-second notes. There was a whole page of 30-second notes. And he wanted me to play alto flute in with the marimba and then the tenor sax. And I said, well, you have to punch in in between 30-second notes. So I can't... I got to take a breath. I can't play all this in one breath. You're going to have to punch me in. But the engineer messed it up. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? All right. I'm Jack. This is Alex. Alex. Pleasure to meet you, Alex? Pleasure to meet you, nice sir. Nice to meet you. Are you done? Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to finish this blog and finish this oh. thought. Oh, okay. Here. Okay, so... Can't stop it. Let's so, uh, uh, anyway, he, it was 3 in the morning, and he goes, uh, well, how, what do I owe you? I say, owe me? And I say, well, I don't know. Whatever scale is, I say, I'll make out the contract <clears throat> and come back, because I'm getting... I'm the contractor, because it's just me. So he says, Okay. And he said, what's it going to be? And I said, I don't know. And he said, it's 3 in the morning. I can't think straight. I had a calculator watch, the first one Cassio ever made. <laughs> and I said, well, let's see, 200, I'm trying to double scale. And he goes, what do you mean double scale? I said, I'm alone in the room. It's double scale. You know that. You're a union member. He goes, no, I was conducting you. You only get scale. And I said, uh-oh. Hey, let's hold this guy here, camera. <laughs> Okay, we're coming back on the podcast now. Had a brief intermission. I'll, he had I'll talk to. About my session of the record. Already had to write a check, but we have, so we're just kind of talking a little bit about um, the work he did with Frank Zappa, and um, I was actually just looking up the track listing, and I saw it. Um, we saw that some of these sessions were done, or at the record plant. One was done at Royce Hall. Um, this one was done at the Village Recorders B in Hollywood, Joe's Garage. I've, I've been there, the village. Um, I'll tell you how I broke into the studios. Okay, I would love to hear that. We're gonna we're gonna get to that. That's the next. That's the next. But right now, I just want to conclude this whole Frank thing. Um, 
So the album he's on that you could check out is The Man from Utopia, 1983. And it says here you're credited here alongside um, Chad Wackerman on drums. Vinny Caliuta also is playing drums on this album. Scott Thunes, it said, was playing bass. Ed Mann was playing percussion. C. Vi on guitar. Ray White on guitar. A lot of people on this album. Frank Zappa playing the ARP 2600 guitar vocals drum machine. Yeah, the next day after that session, are we blogging? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're going, we're going. We're going? So, Frank told me to make out the contract. Frank said, make out the contract and uh, come back in the morning. Or I told him that. He goes, fine. He goes, don't worry, I pay my bills. Because there was he was trying to convince me to just work for scale, which is less than scale. Because mm -hmm. if you're alone, it's supposed to be double for a solo or a section, whatever. <clears throat> and I was shocked that somebody as wealthy as him, because mm -hmm. I didn't know much about life when I was 19. Right. How old was I? Uh, I was 20. Well, that was eight, eight, that came out in like between 80 and 82, it says it was recorded. So, Oh, yeah, I was like uh, 30, 29. But I, at that time, I didn't realize how cheap millionaires were, how they were penny pinchers, mm -hmm. and they were really conscious about money. I Absolutely. thought that the rich people didn't think about money. I thought they had so much money, mm -hmm. they didn't even have to think about it. But the other you thing know, about Frank Zappa is he comes from not having money, so... He understands that you got to save money, you know, like. Yeah, so, but so he was. He was trying to save but money. But he was very. Yeah, but he was not very generous. At times he was generous. Other times he was the opposite. And because I know people in his band and, uh, you know, so. Uh, I've heard stories and horror stories, but. Anyway, I go back the next morning about 11 or 12 o'clock or something, 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and, and Steve Vai, Vai, he was like 17 or 18 years old then. Mm -hmm. And he was leaving. He And I said, oh, Steve, I said, uh, you been working? He goes, oh, man, I'm jammed all night. I was all night, you know, recording all night. I said, oh, see ya. And I go in, and I said, oh, here's the contract. It's 1600 bucks for between uh, 1 p.m. and then I had a dinner break and I went back and worked till uh, two, uh, almost 3 in the morning. So I worked for like 11 hours. Mm -hmm. And I played all these instruments and I every time I overtracked, it was another double, another... So the 15% added up. So it was like I made double scale, little, maybe triple scale at the for everything I did, which was lay down a whole entire horn section... And then overdub, you know, 10 instruments over other tunes and overdub, overdub of them all night long. Here's the bill. Here's the contract, 1600 He goes, okay. And that was it. And But I, I'd never filed a contract before. I didn't realize yeah, that, he, that he had to sign it and I take it back. And I was still spaced out from working all night. And I didn't really do my homework and find out how to file a contract. So I said... He said, I'll file it. I'm going to the union tomorrow. I'll file it. And I said, okay. So he filed the contract on right, but it wasn't my contract. Mm. It was another one he made up, listing himself as the leader. And he was getting half my money. So I made 900 bucks instead of 1600 Really? And I went to the union 
and I got my check and it was 900 bucks. I said, what's going on here? And I went upstairs and I wanted to see the contract and he made out a different contract. And as I was looking through the contracts, there was Steve Vai. And he was paid like 150 bucks for working all night overdubbing. You know, he should have gotten a thousand bucks for that. If you can work on an album, you're spending all night. That's like, you know, Union Scale is like, you know, at least 500 bucks, not 150. 150 is like scale for three hours. You know, not over, that double scale would be mm -hmm. 300. And then he should have made six or seven, 800 bucks mm -hmm. for what he did. And I said, and then I realized what kind of guy Frank was. Oh, you're going to pay everybody a third of what you owe. <laughs> so I took him to the credit. I took him to the uh, trial board. I said, I called up Frank and I said, Frank, you owe me, you're 700 bucks short. What happened? He goes, oh, no. He says, yeah, you shouldn't get double scale for what you did. I said, really? Mm. I, I worked till three in the morning doing all what I did, and it's not worth 1600 bucks. I That's half of what Union Scale was for the work I did. We made a deal. We never make a deal with anybody that isn't, you know. Mm -hmm. that's, that's when I learned my lesson. So right. whenever I took a job, it was a union job. And I never. So you did you never not following up to anything about that? I took him to the trial board, and he sent he spent he sent two attorneys and his wife Gail to the trial board. <clears throat> his attorneys are making a hundred at least a hundred an hour each. Mm -hmm. So he was spending the six hundred bucks he owed me, fighting me in court, so he didn't have, wouldn't have to pay me. Mm -hmm. He'd rather give it to the attorneys than to the musician. Anyway, I eventually got my money. I won. Oh, really? Yeah. So he had to pay you and pay, pay the attorneys? Yeah, he had to pay me and his attorneys. And, but then at the trial board, one of the guys, one of the musicians who was on the trial board, one of the board members, he says, you don't want to just settle this? You, you, know, you don't want to work for him again? I go, no, I don't. I don't want to work for someone that's always cheating me. Mm -hmm. You know, as great as he is. As much as I wanted the gig, I don't want to get that bad to get cheated. Do you think everybody that, else I work for pays me union scale? Do you think that that was just a um, a case of you? Don't, you don't think that was just a case of him trying to be cheap with that particular session? You think it was something where it's like Frank, like you, you feel like he just he had a habit of not paying. No, nah, the thing is, what you know, Frank was pay. used to having people worship him. Mm -hmm. And just be happy to be around them. And not yeah, worry so about the money exactly. So he take advantage of that. Right. He expected right. me to grovel and but you were and get whatever I wanted. But you were used to already being playing in those type of situations. No, you just wanted to just. I was starving. I needed the money really bad. I had... Right, but what I'm saying <laughs> is, you weren't like completely starched because you were in your mind. You what you you knew what you were oh. supposed to get paid because you had the experience of. Working, in yeah, I did some good. I did, by then I'd done some really good jobs and knew of my worth. But okay. it, the thing is, when you make a deal with someone and you tell them, exactly, Look, yeah. this is the deal, I'm gonna charge you. Now, that's so funny because I actually had the same thing with uh, a particular uh, artist who I, I produced a whole bunch of music for, and I gave him a huge deal. I would usually be charging like a hundred dollars for any a song, right. And so I was like, you know what, you know, like we're cool. I understand you don't have money right now. I'll do this for you. I'll do all this stuff you're asking me for like twenty dollars a song, 
way <laughs> on the, you know, at the point where it's like, just give me, like, where it's like, I'm basically doing it for free, but like, just to give me something. All good I deeds. All this no work good deed him. goes unpunished. I did all this work for him. No, that's so true. And I sent it to him, and I've been waiting, like, it's been like, I think it's been like six months. I still haven't gotten that $40. <laughs> so this is your, your situation in the modern day. This is how it is. $200 worth of work that I did for $40 to be nice. And still haven't got paid six months later. And it's like, what did I even do you that favor for? Like, what, what did I do you all this favor for? Like, and then it's like, well, no, of course I don't ever want to work with that person again. So I can understand you being like, no, why would I want to work with Frank if he's not going to pay me what he knows? Even when I gave him a break, he still didn't want to pay me. With well, the you know, the, with, the, with the Mothers of Invention, the, the Freak Out record, the whole band wrote that music. It wasn't Frank. It was Ray Collins, Don Preston, well, that, you know, honestly, Bunk, well, Bunk you're, Johnson. You're, you're absolutely right. And that music was basically a mockery of other popular music at that time. Yeah, but what I'm saying is... That was a jam band, kind of like the Grateful Dead. Right. That was a band that was playing in a garage, and Frank would have the tape recorder on. He'd have a little tape recorder, or a big tape recorder. He'd record all the jam sessions. And, and those guys came up with that music. Frank didn't write this music and say, let's play this, guys. They were just jamming, you know? And they were improvising. Mm-hmm. And they'd, come up, and they'd come up with a song, they'd come up with a vamp, they'd come up with a bass part. Right. They were just, that's how musicians are. They just come up with music. And Frank... For the Freak Out album. For everything. Yeah, everything they were doing up until then, Frank would listen to that music on the tape, and then he'd find the parts he liked, and he'd write them down. And then he'd give the band members the music of what right. they'd already created. I understand. And said, he... let's record this. And then he got all the publishing. He didn't share any publishing. But with here's anybody. the thing, and I can I hear you, and I can understand why you say that's not, like you know, or that's not okay and everything, and like, I can understand that, and I completely do. But at the same time, there is a, a you know, there someone has to be organizing this, you know, like I, there is a level of genius in organizing everything and producing the records and putting these people all in the same room and hitting the record button and. At that, at that point, you know what I mean, like producing a record. Well, at that point in time, you can't you can't take all the credit, you know. Yeah, away but, from them because. But if people write, band but you know, it's a band. tradition, at least among jazz musicians. I don't know about. I, I mean, jazz musicians, everyone stole everyone's music. I know, but a lot of people got and publishing too. Some people ripped off the publishing, and others gave it, gave them publishing. But that's historically in jazz. Duke Ellington used to give days, guys publishing. Okay, I don't know. It's a tradition that goes way back. But, for example, it was very common for a musician to hear a song on a jam session, rename it, go record it with a different group of musicians, and call it their song. That was very, very popular. In this day and age, none of that matters anymore because there's no money to be made. But back then, but when back in the 70s, if you wrote a song, you sold 100,000 records, you could buy a house in Van Nuys or the pool. On that record, or that weekend, you can make, uh, you know, you can make $100,000 getting the publishing on, on a hit, or even not even a hit, even a, just a big seller. You could make big money. That's my point. Those were the days that I did But what know. I mean is, all <laughs> of his musicians, <laughs> he never gave any of his musicians, you know, big money, and they were always scuffling, and they all eventually had to quit 
Because I couldn't that afford to work right. with any. I, I, I don't know, man. I don't know about But I mean, I went to this record day at Frank Zappas, and he had built next to his house and, you know, that part of near Mulholland Drive up there. What's that neighborhood called? Uh, Laurel Canyon. He built a solid Redwood studio, <clears throat> three stories high, you know, that he mu he must have spent a ton of money building that, that mm -hmm. uh, you know, and all then he had a complete symphonic percussion setup, like everything a symphony orchestra would have in their percussion, like a quarter million, half a million dollars worth of instruments. Mm -hmm. That was back then. It was a half a million, a Bosendorfer for grand piano. Brand new, Musser vibes, timpani, gongs. Yeah, and he just paid cash for all that stuff, you know. And he's trying to cheat me out of seven hundred bucks, you know. Right. It pissed me off. So he already had the. And then he comes. Then he then he writes time. books and talks about how moral he is and about you know he tries to get into politics as a moral guy. That that was really give me a break. Well, you you had that particular experience with him, so you saw. I wasn't the only him. one, right? I'm saying, but you saw the side of him that people like me, being a fan of his work, didn't. I was his biggest fan. I loved his music. I was a big fan. Okay, well, I grew up on that stuff. We're gonna take a quick. So I guess it's at the. Put an eye on the clock. Okay, you want to record again? Okay, we're back going back on. So, um, just to con just to kind of continue, we're talking about how Frank Zappa, you know, loopholes, always trying to get out of pain. So we're move moving on from that just because um, I think we said what to say about him. I were you a fan of Frank Zappa before? Like you had your personal experience? Not really. No. Okay. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Frank Zappa, so that's why hearing this is like, huh? It's, but it's, I really admired him and. The music he wrote, like, I liked, I loved it. Uh, very difficult. He wrote great stuff. And it was really hard to play. And you had to, you know those guys that you were mentioning, that sax player you were mentioning that used to work with him? Um, he sang vocals, too. Oh, Napoleon Murphy Brock? Yeah, Murphy yeah. Brock. Yeah. You, George Duke was in the yeah, band. Yeah, George Duke. I love George Duke. If you see that band on video. He had John Lupani in the band. At, at, around that that's time. why Buell Nylinger moved here. To L.A. because John Luke Ponty made an album with Frank Zappa, uh -huh. or Frank Zappa produced it, uh -huh. called King Kong. Okay. And Frank called Buell, and he would just quit the Boston Symphony because Eric Leinsdorf had quit as conductor, and Seiji Ozawa was in, Buell didn't like Seiji. He didn't want to have to work with Seiji every day, and was looking for a way out. And Frank called him and says, hey, come to L.A., for this record session. And at the same time, Mel Powell at CalArts called him and said, you want to be a professor at CalArts? Uh, Yasha Heifetz and Gregor Piatagorsky are going to be teaching, and you'll be the bass teacher. He goes, okay. He offered him a lot of money. So this was all happening at the same time. So he was making a lot of, making more money than the Boston Symphony, which is a high-paying job. And then while he was here with that, doing that record, Actually, before CalArts called him, uh, at that record, it was Gene Cipriano, my friend, and who's still doing the Academy Awards since 1958. <clears throat> Sax player, oboe player, doubler. And uh, the 
great horn player, uh, Vince DeRosa, they met Buell and they heard him play the bow at that record date. And they went up to him and, and uh, they said, hey man, uh, you should move here because nobody can play the bow like that in L.A. Mm -hmm. Because they, they just don't do that here. You could, you could do that, take over the town. So he says, huh. So he thought about that. So then he came to town and said, yeah, I'm going to live here in L.A. Why not? Anyway, so what was the point of this story? Uh, You're talking about um, how uh, Frank was producing John Pony's album and he called Buell Nedlinger to be on John Pony's album? Right. Right. And how anyway, that's, how, that's why Buell moved here. And Frank then when he was Frank. here and teaching at CalArts, uh, he met me, actually met me before CalArts, and then he got me a gig teaching at CalArts because they wanted to open up a jazz department. They didn't know anybody. And he says, oh, I know a sax player. He teaches that stuff all the time. He can run a program. And I was like 21 years old, college dropout. But I, I'd bring in material for my students. So I said, yeah, let's, uh, let's try it. So I made $130 for an afternoon. Actually, just four-hour class. It was a fortune, 1973, a lot of money, 130 bucks. And that was like a week's worth of work back then. I said, great. So I started a program. We had a jazz band. I brought in charts. I taught students how to transcribe their own solos from their favorite artists and how to do it. And, and, and we, it worked out pretty good. So... I was uh, making some pretty steady bread. I still had my own students, and the economy was good, and everything was cool until about 1983 when Peter Ivers was murdered. We were in a band with Peter Ivers, who was had a record deal on Warner Brothers, and we were getting paid to rehearse uh, for four hours a night for four nights a week. I think we made 400 a week. That was big money back then. 400 a week. My rent was like 50 bucks a month. 150 for a whole house. I was renting a house on Howland Canal in Venice. The rent now there is about 6,000 a month or something. Back then it was 150 a month. I was making 400 a night. So at, at Studio Instrument Rentals. Good times. Good times. And uh, Billy Cobham was across the hall wow, rehearsing okay. with uh, Michael, the Brecker brothers, Michael and Randy, and Glenn Ferris on trombone. All in L.A.? They were from the New York band, but they were living in L.A., mm -hmm. rehearsing, getting ready to go on tour. Mm -hmm. And then next to him was Smokey Robinson and his band. And I was there every night hanging out with Smokey Robinson. And I'd get there early, and Smokey would be just sitting in his room, sitting there in the rehearsal room all alone. And I'd, I knew he was going to be there, so I'd get in there and early and hang out with him, talk. Pick his brain. He was totally cool. He was, love, you know, he was just, he'd love to have someone to visit with while waiting for the guys to show up. Man. Mm -hmm. So, wow. That's, that's, yeah, we were, we had a deal on Warners and, and then we were about to go on the road and then the label dropped him. They decided against it. Smokey Robinson? No, Peter Ivers. Oh, Peter. Okay. Then he was murdered, 1983. So awful. Then I lost all my work. I was working in the theater 
doing eight shows a night. I was making 1400 bucks a week in the theater, and uh, I had two TV shows, Starsky and Hutch and BJ and the Bear. All of, uh, Nelson Riddle was the composer for... I was busy. I was making a fortune, man. Things were rolling. <laughs> I don't know. I was making two grand a week or something, at least. And uh, then in 1983, Ivers got murdered, and then I lost my theater gig. The contractor went crazy and got in trouble, and I got a new contractor, and I lost that account. And then my TV shows quit. They were over. So this, and this was shortly after the, the whole Zappa incident, right? Yeah. That's right. And I was broke. All was of a sudden, around, I had no work. Was this around the time that you met Jocko and he came into town? That was around that period, too. Yeah. I was working with Charlie Hayden at the Liberation Orchestra. I think that was a little bit after that period. That was 85 or 86. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but I, we still had our record label. But I went from like making, being rich and then I was broke. And then I have a, a new son, an autistic son who needs daycare. And my wife started to work then. But it's my, and I said, yeah, I can see why my mom didn't want me to be a musician. <laughs> you've had a crazy life. So, I know other artists you've worked with, some of the bigger ones. Um, that we haven't mentioned, uh, um, I know we've talked about, is uh, a session with Aretha Franklin, produced by Quincy Jones. Oh, that was my first record date at Record Plan. Is that right? That was my first that's, union that's record, record date. That's the Record Plan. That's what we're, yeah. we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, got, I didn't, I was like, really, this was like 1972, and I, I met, through Buell, I met a composer named Fred Myro, and... MGM had just fired Isaac Hayes. And Isaac Hayes was the head of music, music supervisor at MGM. And he had an office right after, near the front gate upstairs, a huge screening room, the grand piano. And, and he was in charge of music. And then after, you know, the, you know, the hit that he was on, Shaft, mm -hmm. Shaft, right? Mm -hmm. That was a big hit, and they just said, "Oh yeah, you're going to be the music director. We're doing more black exploitation movies, and this is the new in thing." You know, they wanted to. Everybody wants to be hip and new, mm -hmm. so that didn't work out. The other movies bombed, and they said, "Ah, we need a we need to get a real composer that writes music and it have has it copied, and you know, instead of going in the studio and just working stuff out like Motown, mm -hmm. they wanted to have a legit." Composer, traditional yeah, composer, yeah, yeah. like like they used to before. Mm -hmm. So Freddie Myro, I don't know why they picked him. He, he it would take him a year to write nine minutes of music. He was one of these guys that a minimalist, you know, a very serious composer, really good, but took forever to write just a a little piece, you know, like those classical guys, like modern guys do. You know what I mean? I just call them slow. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. no. There's a these composers, <laughs> it would take him six months to write a chamber symphony. Yeah, you know. Well, well, okay, well, okay, well, if it's something super detailed like that, and there's all these um, dynamics and all articulations and all this sort of stuff and transposing, okay, I can understand yeah. why it takes forever. 
It has to be copied. It has to be rehearsed. You know. Well, now that's different than actually writing it. Actually well, even writing, writing it. it literally just anyway, it he used to be slow. So okay. Anyway, so he was looking for a doubler and someone that could play modern and because it was in the movie Soil and Green. He was writing a score that was kind of like if you took a, too much LSD, like a double dose, and then you went into an elevator and heard elevator music. Remember elevator music? You, this before your time. Yeah, I, I, I can. There I can used imagine. to be these. It's they, smooth, a little bit on the smooth it, side, generally uh, speaking. Yeah, right? it used to be uh, covers of pop songs. Acoustic, uh, instrumental, orchestral. Jazz. Yeah, it was orchestral, like an orchestra would do an arrangement of a hard day's night. Oh, but it was okay. really lame with a drum beat going, ch -ch -ch, you know, a stupid drummer playing really lame. It was nothing rhythmic about it. But it would have been okay, but they made it real stupid. So that's the type of music he was writing? Or? It was awful. It was just, just garbage. And they played in elevators. And it was a whole industry that people made a living on playing elevator music. Anyway, he wanted it to sound like elevator music of the future because it was about a sci-fi movie about the future and the Earth's coming to an end from pollution. Mm -hmm. and everything. So when you go into the condo, there's piped-in music playing... And it's like bossa nova, da, da. but he hooked up synthesizers and ring modulators to it to make it sound otherworldly. And he wanted an electric flute player to play like a solo over it with echoplex and ring modulator and all these effects. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool way out, you know. And so I was playing these bossa nova flute solos, <laughs> but they were real weird, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I was playing sax and bass clarinet and all my doubles, bass flute. And and at the end of the sessions, I, he wanted a Mozart piece, the, so Kegel, the Kegelstadt you, trio for... Who's who's producing this session that you're talking about? This is for the movie Soil and Green. So, okay. And Eddie Myro, Freddie Myro is the composer. Freddie Myro. The right. leader, the conductor, and the composer. MGM, yeah. He had a music, whatever. And the contractor at that session saw me. He never knew who I was. He was one of the contractors that contracted record dates. So Aretha Franklin, for their session, Quincy Jones needed a baritone player. But also, there were like six baritone players in town. And they were all busy doing other... There was so much work. There were like 60 sessions a week. Six zero. Every week. Can you imagine how many sessions that is? In, in Los Angeles? Yeah, there were like 10 sessions a in day. In a session, you mean by having... A An orchestra or a band... So recording a TV day. show or a movie or a record date or a jingle. Right. So that's all the back studios in the day, were booked. This session musician was actually a viable career. There was so much work to go around that here I was, a hippie, a twenty-year-old hippie. Well, I was twenty-one then. Had long hair, um, pot smoking, you know, with a bad attitude, not political, not trying to blend in with anybody, just doing my own thing. But they needed a baritone player, and this contractor didn't even see me playing baritone. He didn't know, hear me play baritone. I didn't play baritone on the movie. But he recommended me to Ray Brown, the bass player, because mm -hmm. he was contracting for Quincy Jones. So I got the call. Aretha Franklin, record day at the record plant, 1 and p.m. Ray Brown is, is on the bass for the session. I, I don't even know. No, I don't think no. he was. He, he was just contracting. He, he, so Quincy Ray, called him to contract the session. Oh, okay. So Ray Brown found the musicians. 
Yeah, he was contracting. Okay. He followed the contracts at the So someone recommended you to Ray Brown. Yeah. How does that feel? Well, the, yeah, came as a, <laughs> you know, record date for Ray Brown, Quincy Jones. I said, whoa. How does that This feel? is the big time. How did, that you know? feel, how did that feel when you saw that? It made me real nervous. For Ray Brown? It made me real nervous. Were you familiar with Ray Brown at all? Sure. Sure. I, mean, I think he's pretty much. He's on jazz at the Philharmonic. Is I don't for, I don't know about for your generation, but for my generation, he's looked at as pretty much one of the godfathers of the of the modern. In fact, Buell Nylinger studied with Ray Brown. Okay, he it was Walter Page, and Oscar Pettiford and Ray Brown. Those were his teachers. That's crazy. But yeah, I mean, so <laughs> so what did okay so so you 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 had a lot of. I respect or admiration or any for Quincy and Ray Brown when you first at that time? Like, did you know about them and were you like... Yeah, yeah, I knew who Quincy was. Yeah. I knew Quincy did all those arrangements on Mercury for Sarah Vaughan and Dinah Washington and, you know, he's a big time arranger. To me, Quincy Jones is like Nelson Riddle. You know, they're big time, you know... They work for Frank Sinatra, they're all the you know. Hits. They're doing all the major. Yeah, if you're arranging the biggest. Yeah, if you're arranging for Frank Sinatra, that's about as big as it gets. There's nobody bigger than Frank Sinatra. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, at that time, yeah, it's, it'd be like the equivalent of Michael Jackson, and which he which he also was later arranged for. Wait, wait, but so anyway, so I go into the, I get to the date, and. Nobody's, everybody's milling around, and I'm looking, I go, my God, that's J.J. Johnson. I recognized him from his pick, from his record covers, the trombone player. Yeah. I said, man. I said, these are... Play with Miles, right? You play, I play with everybody. Gil Evans, like that type of, yeah. And he's a legend. He said, he's the creator of bebop trombone. He was the first, you know. And then there's Phil Woods, who I was like, my favorite alto player for uh, Oliver Nelson, besides Eric Dolphy, Phil Woods was, mm-hmm. yeah, you know. And they were there in the Phil thing. Woods was there. There was mm-hmm. Phil Woods. I'm, t- I'm standing next to Phil Woods. These are my heroes when I'm on the records right. I buy, right. you know. And Snooky Young on trumpet. So, Oscar Brashear is there. Anyway, the, the cream of the creme, the creme de la creme, and Clifford Solomon was a tenor player who played, was like an R&B funk tenor player that played with like, you know, different acts. I knew who he was. I saw him on a lot of records. Mm-hmm. I said, man, and I, I got a little nervous, you know, and now there's nothing to do. So I says, hey, how you doing, Marty? I'm Phil, you know. This is, uh, got any weed? And then, uh, I do. So I imagine <laughs> these guys probably had heard of you as well by this No, time. nobody Not knew. Really. no. You were kind of the odd one out, you feel like. Uh, nobody heard of me. I was like living in Topanga. But I mean, obviously someone heard of you because you were there. Well, no, he didn't hear of me. I said, I'm you. Marty and I don't feel, you but know. someone had heard of you and invited you to the recording session with Quincy Jones and Fred, or Franklin and Phil. Well, Williams. he knew I could play because I was there, you know. Right. So he was okay. friendly. Phil was real friendly. He was very cool. And so he introduced me to the Coke machine at the record plant which had Coors beer for five cents each. So as much beer as you wanted for a nickel a bottle. So we were drinking beer, and now it's two o'clock. We're an hour over, an hour into the date, and Quincy's like, there are no arrangements. 
There's no leader. Quincy's not, not to be seen. Now it's three o'clock. Now it's four o'clock. Now we're into an hour overtime. And we're about to go into two hours overtime. Meanwhile, we drank 30 beers each or something. <laughs> we're just drinking beer for four hours. And we're smoking weed, Phil's weed. And I say, man, this is the most fun I've ever had in my life, I think. I'm get, hanging out and getting high with my mm -hmm. the guys I admire most. You're talking, this, you're talking this, this, just talking hanging out. Whatever. Yeah. That's crazy. And were you like, did you kind of feel like, because I feel like whenever I hang around people that I've admired, I'm just like, almost like a student in a way. It's like you're trying to get some knowledge from them. But then at some point you just realize like, okay, you're just a normal dude. You know what I mean? And then you just start just like hanging out. Yeah, we were talking, I was talking about Phil and his family and why he moved back from Europe. Right. Because of the medical, which is weird because people go to Europe for the medical, but he thought the doctors were better and that's the kind of shit we were talking about. So y'all are four hours into this. this and then, so the finally, all of a sudden everybody like gets serious. Quincy's back, Quincy's back with the charts. Quincy gets, <laughs> so everyone starts to like, Quincy gets oh, out of the limo and he's, oh, and I got my read, what my read and, all of a sudden, we have music in front of us, and it's like 10 minutes to 5. So we're about to go into two hours, the second hour of overtime, which is like, I don't know, every 10 minutes is $70 more for each guy. And it's a big band. So now the pressure's on. Now we've got to be professional. So... Into the going into the fifth hour of overtime, <laughs> just getting the charge from Quincy Jones, who is the ink is wet still on the page. Just and, finished writing, and he goes, Okay, story. hey, now, hey, the other side of the sky is the name of it. And I got a big baritone part, three pages long. Oh boy, and it goes, Okay, and he goes, uh, Let's rehearse. And he looks at the clock and he goes, Now let's just take one, eight clicks in front. I got my phones on a click, 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 click. Click, click, bop, bop, I'm playing the baritone, bop, 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 And I'm, I'm starting to realize that I'm the only one playing. Everybody, J.J. Johnson's behind me, Snooky Young, Quincy's in front of me, and, and nobody's playing with me. And, and I keep going. I'm reading the music, bop, bop, bop. And I, I hear Aretha in the phones and the rhythm section, the bass, and I'm locked in with the bass. Bass has got the same figure I do, pretty much. Right, I'm just right. locked in, making sure, and I'm, I'm, you know, making the most That's of so it. Cool. <laughs> and this goes on for like two minutes, just me. And then the band, then the rest of the arrangement comes in. And the rest of the horns start to play, and I'm getting four, to the fourth page, and, and it's over. I said, man, I did it. I played, didn't make any mistakes. I, I can't believe it. I made it. And then Quincy says, okay, next. And then we go to the next tune, and the same thing. We plug one take. Then the next tune, one take. And we, we recorded three tunes in like nine minutes. And we made it before the double overtime. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. And that was it. I said, man, I, that is the strangest day I've ever had in my life. So you literally... We're recording music one take and you're over within 15 minutes. No, within nine minutes. Because he didn't want to pay, you know, we didn't, that's, a, and I learned what a being a studio musician is. And I learned that, oh, the main thing is you've got to record this 
of music in this amount of time, or else somebody's going to cost. It's going to cost someone money. And the whole yeah, that's true. But also, I can say you know, if Quincy had the charts ready to go at the beginning of the session, it wouldn't. It we would have been out of there. And exactly, it wouldn't. We it had wouldn't three hours. A lot of money. So, yeah. I mean, I obviously it sounds like he was coming down to the wire with those parts, and they, he wrote them perfectly. Obviously, because they worked. You know, I'm sure they worked. I'm sure they sounded great. I gotta. Do you, do you remember what? Record it ended up coming out on. Hey now, hey the other side of the sky. Okay. Hey now, hey the. Nineteen seventy three came out. I will definitely be listening to that. Um, that sounds. But like you know, Harry Nilsson, songwriter. Midnight Cowboy. He was. He wrote okay. some hits. He was just the opposite. He's from England. And. Uh, he wouldn't have any music. He'd play a song on the piano at RCA, and he'd hire a horn section. To come figure out the parts. And we'd be sitting in a circle around him, and he'd be singing the parts to us. And we'd be figuring them out and harmonizing them. And this would go on for hour after hour. Sometimes we'd go on for 12 hours straight, and we'd be making triple overtime. We'd be making three grand a day doing that. You know, one time... Uh, I wasn't there that night, but Gene Cipriano, Yosip, my, he, he was playing baritone, and I walked into Wally Hyder at RCA, and I heard this, the greatest baritone tone I ever, the most fantastic baritone sax sound I ever heard. It was like fantastic. I said, God, how does that guy get a sound like a... It was like funky, but warm and dark. And I was like, man, it intimidated me. I'd never heard anything that good coming out of a baritone sax, ever. Mm. Who was it? Gene Cipriano. Gene Cipriano. Okay. But he was playing tenor that day, and I was playing baritone. And it made me uptight. Right. Because they're used to that, and now they're going to have this. So I said, I can have I'll do it. You know, I'll get that. I was determined to sound great like that. Anyway, so... Sip told me the story the day before. They went, it was a 10 o'clock double from 10 to 1 and 2 to 5. Then they just kept going overtime, 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 till it was now 3.30, 4 in the morning. And they still hadn't gotten the part right on a two. <laughs> and Sip had a 8 a.m. double session at Fox. He had to get to. So he said, Harry, uh, I'm gonna to have to leave in a half hour. I gotta to go to my to Fox. I gotta be at Fox at eight a.m. It was like seven in the morning. They're still working, and he, and Harry said, "Oh, sure, Sip, go ahead. That's fine." Man, okay, so you well, you walk into that session, and there'd be cases of Quavassier brandy. You know, there's twelve bottles in a case. They'd be in wooden mm -hmm. cases. They'd be stacked up five feet high, two stacks. We go just drinking in the yeah, studio. Yeah, I, I met the first time I met Harry Nilsson, he handed me a bottle of brandy. Oh, hi, Marty. I'm Harry. Welcome aboard. <laughs> then one of the guitar players would take me into the John and offer me Coke. That was a whole different deal. Man, well, you, you lived through the 80s. <laughs> you, lived, you lived through LA in the 80s. Do you really? I survived. That? I mean, I feel like. You, I mean, you know, but like, thing, 
things changed a lot. Just from what I've seen, even in the last, like, 10 years, let alone the last 20 years, let alone the last 30 years. You know what I'm saying? Because the crack epidemic was real. You know what I mean? The, but in the black community, CIA brought in tons of crack to... This neighborhood used to be all Ricky black. Ross. This neighborhood used to be black and Japanese. 30, over 30, I moved in here in 88. And my neighbor's still there. And so is my neighbor. Those are my black neighbors left. He just sold his house across the street. He's been here longer than me. Ron Sylvia. So he, a lot he, of people are still here. But yeah, a lot of big, it was a black community on the street. And I was afraid, you know, I said, this neighborhood is sketchy because the houses are all run down. There are all these drugs. And there are these addicts that are these rehab places where junkies are milling around in the front yards at board and care. And we were looking to buy and the neighborhood was really sketchy. You know, junkies hanging out yeah, in mean, the front here, yard. The whole, I mean, all of, I feel like all of. And my wife said, no, he's, it's cool. Don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. This is where we can afford. For 170000 you can get a house a 3,000 square foot, five bedroom, three bath house, big enough for our kids. Mm -hmm. And you can spend the same house where we're from. We went to Venice High in Mar Vista. I was raised in Mar Vista. So was she, but she grew up in the projects on welfare. And I grew up son of a businessman in West LA. So, but same neighborhood, same schools. And, uh, she said, no, uh, for 175, you can get a tiny two bedroom, one bath house, you know, on the west side, or you can get a big mansion over here. So she said, "No, this is where we're going to move. We're going to buy a house." Okay. Turned out to be the best move ever, because the neighborhood improved, and I could go to any studio in 20 minutes. I was right centrally located near downtown. I could go to Burbank in 20 minutes, MGM in 20 minutes, Fox. There's a lot less traffic then. Mm -hmm. Now it takes an hour to go anywhere. Yeah, things have changed so much. Man. I kind of, I, I we're going to kind of conclude the podcast soon, but I just wanted to say that, uh, first of all, I appreciate you sharing so much of, you know, your story and your journey and your experience. I wanted to ask you, um, because the music industry has changed so much, from the days where, you know, people were going out, buying records, buying CDs, buying vinyl, going even seeing shows a lot more. And now it's, you know, obviously streaming. Uh, jazz obviously is not a, a big, um, you know, in music, but even popular music less uses less live musicians. And so studio musicians aren't really a, a thing anymore. I mean, there are musicians that definitely still work a lot in the studio, but I feel like now it's more like producers who happen to play instruments sometimes. Um, so understanding all this, um, where do you kind of see like the music head, the music industry? And the next question I'm going to ask you, so you can kind of lead up into it is what is your advice for like younger musicians, given the fact that we're no longer living in the seventies where you can make $3,000 in a studio session in a couple days or, you know, because you happen to play more than one instrument. Nowadays, I'm a producer. I play guitar on the track, bass, keyboard. I'm writing, arranging, mixing. I'm not getting paid double, triple for nothing. I'm lucky if I get paid just as a producer. So 
Yeah, well, Stevie Wonder did that too. Exactly. But he still hired a horn section. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so Stevie Wonder, so I mean, well, obviously it's his sessions where he's not paying himself, but. but he of, he he didn't file a union contract and hire guys for double scale to come in and great mm-hmm. horn section to plan mm-hmm. his records. Because he had big budgets. Mm-hmm. He, he, used to, he, used to he had a label right. behind him. And then his own label, when mm-hmm. he could afford it. But, uh, well, I mean, I was lucky enough, when I was growing up, music was an actual commodity. Mm-hmm. You know, like cell phones and TVs, and mm-hmm. people had to have music. you had to buy. They had to buy. They had to buy. They I remember. Always bought I remember. Music I remember. was like food. Yeah. I mean, you bought it. When I was Something. young, if you wanted to hear some music, you had to buy the CD. Yeah, television was free. If you wanted music, you paid. You didn't have to pay much. It's like buying a pack of cigarettes or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, $8, $10. Yeah, it's like buying a bunch of bananas or a CD. Yeah. Vinyl record would probably be it's, you know, you the can, most $15, $20. I mean, nowadays, vinyl records are like $40 and $50 and $60. Well, for, for exclusive. For $3.98, you could buy dinner, a cheap, you know, cheap dinner back then. So, But as a musician, uh, people would always need us. If you're making a demo, let's say someone like you. Most people who are songwriters don't play instruments. And if they do, they only play one. So they're going to have to make a demo. In order to, in other words, for them to be Back then, you had to get a record deal and work for a record label to be a success. And in order to do that, you had to make a demo. So, if you wanted a bass or a drum, or a, there were no drum machines, you had to hire a drummer. You had to hire a bass player. You had to hire a sax player. Saxophone was popular for Motown. So, I'd get these calls all the time for to do a demo session for 30 bucks. You'd spend a couple of hours and you'd overdub whatever they needed. You play a solo, they wanted a sax solo on their demo, see? So I, so you, I was just making a living just doing demos. And the guys that didn't, hadn't broken into the studios and were doing record dates for the big acts were doing demos for cash. 30 bucks, 50 bucks. Lots. There was hundreds of those. There was at least a hundred a day. It was unbelievable. You go to a home studio. You go to a regular studio. So that was going on until when I made that album for Frank Zappa. He played for me the first drum machine ever made. And Joe Porcaro or Steve Porcaro played drums on it and they recorded it, or somebody recorded it, and sampled it, mm-hmm. and played it back. It wasn't digital, but it was, I don't know what it was, but it was a drum machine. And he played, he said, what do you think of this drums, these drums? And I listened to it in the booth. It sounded like a really hot drummer. And I said, yeah, that's good. He goes, it's not a drummer. I go, what is it? He goes, it's called a drum machine. I go, What? He goes, yeah, I don't have to hire a drummer anymore. <laughs> I said, I was thinking, what a jerk. Why would you even say that, even if you didn't have to hire a drummer? 
And I was saying, that's when I got in his mentality. Oh, yeah, I don't have to hire him. I can save money. Of course, he didn't mind spending $20,000 for the drum machine. He could have hired 100 drummers for five years. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, he was, a, I think he really was an innovator. He was someone who looked into the future, like Miles Davis, you know, and that's why I really appreciate him. And I can understand, like, coming from, the, like, being a self-taught, well, he, the thing about him was innovate, you know? he had, was really a genius because when he edited those records, <clears throat> he could remember everything that they played. This is very unusual. Like if you do a live concert for two hours and then you have tapes from the tape to the truck that was making the recording, the live gig, mm -hmm. he could say, the second set on this one tune... Uh, after the guitar chorus, um, we screwed up the second time around on the head when someone played a wrong note. Mm -hmm. I want to edit that out. Yeah, I remember stuff like that too, honestly. But and then he, he says, then he knew. Yeah, he says, I know on on the fourth day, on the first, you remember which when they played the tune next, where it was a good take, and mm -hmm. he spliced that tape. Right. And cut with the razor blade and cut it and hook right. it up and exactly. he could do that all by himself. Right, and that's where I was saying is like, you got to give him credit because the way he pieced things together. Well, no doubt, was no very doubt. And also, hey, you know, it was very... I mean, Richard Wagner was a Nazi, right? Before there were mm -hmm. Nazis, Richard Wagner was a racist, anti-Semite, hated Jews, and let everybody know it. Mm -hmm. You know, he write a, write articles about how the Jews should be run out of town. You know, mm -hmm. but. He wrote. Yeah, yeah. He was a. He wrote fantastic music. So who you know? That's the way people. R. Kelly was a was a pedophile. Yeah, right. R. Kelly is a pedophile, and uh, I don't know if he's in the same I mean, league as no, definitely league as Richard Wagner. But. No, but I mean, I feel like you can not make not terrible music. And... I mean, that's what my father. Did he tell? Did he hear anything? I mean, what did he think about the whole R. Kelly thing when the, you know, trial was happening? What were you thinking at the time? I don't follow him. You don't know? Okay. When okay. it comes this to... Not, it's not even touch that. Let's yeah, because, on. you know... Let's move on. I mean... It's not yeah, it's just as if, <laughs> I mean, I'm into acoustic music, you know. That's I, okay. Okay, that's okay. I like... I mean... But, okay. So, um... I mean, I thought it was bad is, enough... I thought it was bad enough to have electric guitars in the band. Because the electric guitar is the natural predator of the saxophone. Hmm. Eats them up. They and turn they, up their volume, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I think I think it really is about blending, it's about finding the right sounds. Well, I grew together. up playing in rock and roll bands, and that was so you, so you know about it. But that just means you maybe weren't playing with the musicians who are conscious of how. Well, we were in a power acid up. rock band, you know, heavy metal. I was playing heavy metal sax through a bandmaster, Fender bandmaster, and the electronic pickup. That's not like good times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had it all going on. Okay, so just to kind of conclude, you know, to try to wrap things up, you got so much to talk about. I feel like there may be another episode. But what would I future. what would I advise a young Yeah, that's what right? I wanted to give you because we didn't. I mean, I asked you about where you see the music industry kind of going, or you know, um, we didn't talk too much about that. We're talking more about the past. 
But what is well, your advice for musicians here's coming how, up here's in today's the, age? Because it's changed so much, and like I said, there aren't necessarily all those opportunities to make a bunch of money to pay your rent doing the studio recording. So what is your advice just, just going forward? Well, you know, I never expected to make any money playing music, ever. Okay. It wasn't until my back was against the wall that I had to make money. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't my intention of playing music. My intention was to be the best. It wasn't to make the most money or to get the most jobs. It was to be the best. Now, one of the reasons for the best was that when I was young and a teenager, and I could figure, well, I saw these people being professional musicians making money, and I said, well, if you can make money playing music, I want to play music. And if I can make money, great. If I can, I'll do something else to make money. But that wasn't going to stop me from seeing how good I could be. Mm-hmm. Because to me, it was like, I heard these geniuses, Yasha Heifetz, you know, Gregor Piatigorsky, Rudolf Serkin, these concerts, Glenn Gould, you know. Mm-hmm. My dad was playing, buying all these records. I was listening to all this stuff. And I, I, it, I really dug it, you know. It excited me. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I can do that. I can, I can play like that. Passion, you know. Mm-hmm. You know um, focus, intensity, like musicality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was like, and I watched so you TV. You had a really good inspiration early, early in early And on. then when you watch Which, television, the same, mu- the greatest musicians in the world were coming through the TV speaker, playing music by really great composers. And orchestrators. You'd hear bass clarinet and clarinet and piccolo and guitar. Weird combination of instruments. Really hip shit. It was ex- inspiring. I mean, uh, it was all around. All You'd hear a, a Chevrolet commercial. You'd hear do-do-do-do-do-do-do. You'd hear some swinging trio playing, you know. It was like music was all over, everywhere. And then people, I, you'd, I would went to a some kind of, my parents took me to a, a play or a musical or something. And in the lobby was these guys in tuxedos, a jazz group, four saxophones and rhythm section, playing tunes in the lobby. And they, they didn't even have any music, right? There were no charts. And they were holding three fingers up for like three sharps, uh, you know, calling out tunes. You know, Lush Life. You know, four flats or whatever, you know. And I, I said, what, what is that? And I looked at these guys and and my parents said, come on, we're going to go upstairs to the, get our, we got our tickets, we're going to see it. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was, and I waited for these guys. They were there early. And then they started to play. I was like eight years old or something. And to me, they were like alien Martians or something. These guys were freaks. What are the, how are these guys sitting down there and just playing and they're playing arrangements. They're just like improvising, making up harmonies. And it was like, it blew my mind to see that live when you're like seven or eight years old. And then I said, oh, that, I said, Deb, who are those people? And he says, they're professional musicians. I go, wow. I mean, I saw musicians who playing music and music stands, symphonies. You know, they rehearsed and they, you know, presented a concert. These guys just show up and they just blow. Say, wow, these guys are the 
are geniuses, you know. I said, someday I'm going to be able to do that. Just show up and blow. Now, when I go to Disneyland when I was a kid, six years old, and the same thing. There'd be a, a New Orleans, at the New Orleans restaurant, there'd be a black jazz band playing Dixieland style, you know, traditional. Then there'd be uh, other string quartets playing, and there'd be other, there'd be a saxophone quintet playing in another part of the park. You know, mm -hmm. so, the, so to be a professional, I said, well, you gotta, in order to get the jobs, you gotta be really good. So I said, well, I'm gonna be really good. So in case our jobs, I'll be able to plan. Mm -hmm. Right, but at the same time, so you really just focus on getting your technique to the point where you could take on the responsibility of playing with any situation that came up. Yeah, and I knew I had to play the flute and the saxophone, and so. But I could teach music. I taught in a music store. I had private students. I could also. I was a good house painter. I could do paint houses. I had yeah, a lot so of skills. You, so you had a lot of different things to do. You didn't just focus have one. Yeah, I, I knew how to make a living even without music. Since I was a kid, I had a paper route. That's important. Yeah. So, so while I was learning how to be a musician, I could make money because the economy was so good. That That's the problem now is that if you're going to be a musician, then find out a way to make money, you know, besides being a musician. Find out a way so you can have time to practice and learn how to be a musician. Yeah, fund it. Yeah, like, you know, right now, you like, you go to music school and you pay, you have a student loan of $100,000. You have to pay off. And it doesn't help you get jobs or anything. Being in music school, what is that? How is that going to get you work? I mean, if you don't know... I mean, I learned how to play music pretty much. I'm pretty much self-taught. I mean, I had a clarinet teacher and I had a, a studio musician who taught me how to play saxophone. But I pretty much figured, I learned how to play the flute on my own. I didn't have a flute teacher. I just practiced, you know, because I had all the time in the world to do it. But now you don't. So you, you, you have to learn how to figure out what it is you want to do with music and why. That's the key. Why? Because you have to. Me, I had to play music. It's like that's all I wanted to do. That was a motivation. But now, people don't even need music. You know, I needed to play it. I would people say people, I would say people don't need music. It's just, it's just the format has changed. It's just changed how people. Uh, yeah, the format. It, musicians aren't part of the form. You don't need live musicians as much. You don't need It's all on a computer now. Everything's sampled. You could write music and play it and perform it. I'm going to go to the, the biggest money makers are the rappers, and there's not even a musical instrument on the stage. There's a computer. Well, it depends who artists are. There's turntables and a computer. Depends who artists are talking about. Because a lot of artists, hip hop artists, have live bands nowadays, like Lil Wayne. I know, uh, you know, Beyonce, Jay Z, Kendrick. All the big artists generally have now live they bands. do. But for the last twenty years, they didn't. I remember no, 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 the, they did. They did. I remember the first time I saw on Saturday Night Live or some TV show, there was a rap group and they had a conga drummer, and that was the first time I saw a musical instrument in a rap act. That well, was twenty five years though. ago. 
I know hip hop isn't your thing per se, but it's so it's a different perspective. But I would argue that the instrument in a hip hop group is the vocalist and it's also the DJ. The DJ is serving an instrument because the way he's utilizing samples and creating rhythms is different. And then, but the thing is, the DJ has been replaced by the laptop, so it's different. But originally, it was a DJ who was really creating a beat, and then the lyricist was like an extra part. Well, of he that, wasn't you know creating I mean? a beat; he was playing. No, no, no. Was I mean, I mean, creating a beat. No, no, no. no. Oh, he was you actually. Gotta, I'm talking about people like the originators, like you know, Grandmaster Flash and like. Cool. Her people who like took the vinyl records and like create like were spinning oh, yeah. it, yeah. creating a beat in that way, remixing a certain break from a, a record. Oh yeah. And then that and then the then the hip hop artists came on top of that and started spinning. And then you got groups like Run DMC, you know, who had the DJ, but then you had the lyricists who started to actually take more of a forefront. Mm-hmm. So, but then it's changed now to where someone's playing pressing play on a laptop or pressing an instrument, basically playing an instrumental. Well, you but know then here's happened. the other thing. I just want to say this: is you also see people playing a saxophone in the park with a backing track, right. which is technically the same thing as a hip hop artist doing that right. with the backing track and this rapping over it. Yeah. I mean, it's a, this is different. The, the difference is right. that people had to have more talent to do that. Then now you don't have to have any talent. It's more like a, you're a computer scientist. It's like you're a computer programmer or a, you know, you have organizational skills, but you don't have to have any musical talent to do that. I understand. I, like, you know, I would say that in 1900. Is, or, is or, organizational skills as well, though. You well, know? like you I don't mean, have like to. For example, like the arrangements on Kind of Blue. Like, that's a, that's a really good organization. <laughs> you know what I mean? What can I do with the three horns, you know? That's how I think because I'm a I'm a composer, but I, I understand what you're saying. Though. I'm not trying to refuse. Yeah, but the sound of that record is created by musicians practicing, you know, for their entire lives to get that sound. The tone. Sound. Yeah, sound tone. You know, the the overlap. Music, sound. But the actual arrangements. It's coming out of. Hey, you weren't playing random notes. It was arranged by. Eleven's right, great organizer, someone who was very organized, knew how to make two horns sound right. like, sound like a whole horn section. Right. You know. Yeah. That's right. We're saying the same thing. We're saying mm-hmm. the same thing. But so, yeah, I think that you've given us some great gems for the podcast. Um, any final thoughts? I know that. Uh, like, what are you, uh, you know, currently working? I know that we potentially have some recordings. We're planning to do here eventually with Michael and Fritz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're gonna record some of your music coming up. We're gonna record. Uh, you know what's that tune? What are those tunes we played last month? Uh, we got. I got a lot of tunes. Lost in Boston and like Monk. Like Monk. What's the one I played on clarinet? Oh, Blossom. Huh? Blossom. 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 You gotta do that one. Yeah, yeah. Do some clarinet ones. And uh, and we'll record that Arthur Blythe tune, Miss Nancy. So you we got, got a lot so of work ahead. New, so you got a new preamp? I got so a new preamp, new more mics. We're actually gonna be able to multi-track. So what do you need now exactly? Do you have everything you need? I I got everything I need pretty much. 
Ready to go. We need, we need a sense. We need a piano tuner. <laughs> and I will charge you. I won't charge you a double. <laughs> for a, <laughs> I won't charge you unions rate either. You do windows too? <laughs> I don't. No, I've never done windows. No, I'll have to teach you how to do windows. It's good. That's, that's another thing I recommend to any musician is learn how to clean windows. Okay. Because you can actually get a squeegee, a bucket, and go up to, and a, go to a, a business and say, I'll clean your window for 20 bucks. And then it'll take you about five to 10 minutes to clean the window. If you, if you have chops, you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You learn how to do it. You can clean a storefront. I've done this because my son Ben is a window cleaner and I, he broke his ankle and I had to take over for him. And, uh, what type of business, like restaurants? You do restaurants, uh, houses, um, storefronts, anything with glass. You can clean a storefront, get make 25 bucks, and it'll take you 10 minutes. And then you go on to the next one. So you're making, how much is that, 250 an hour? Uh, making a... Man, you gotta be fast to do that much. You mean 20, you mean, okay, you said if you take You make $20 minutes, in 10 minutes. It takes you 10 minutes. You, yeah. you hit to say you hit five businesses. That's a hundred dollars potentially. Yeah, but sometimes the businesses are right next to each other. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, hundred dollars an hour. But say it took ten minutes each. Yeah, but then I mean, what's the likelihood of getting ten? Yeah, so you can make a hundred an hour without you know just cleaning very easy and it's a little overhead. All you need is water and a little soap and a squeegee. So I was doing that. I painted houses. I did anything for money. Manual labor. But luckily not for too long. I remember one time I was painting a house in Watts. The bass player that I worked at an R&B club with taught me how to paint professionally and how to texture walls. He was from Alabama. And uh, he was a great bass player, Fender bass, and a good singer too, blues guy. And we had a gig at uh, sold out. <clears throat> and then we'd go to Hazel and Herb's after hours and uh, play all night with Calvin Keys on guitar. Anyway, he said, hey, man, uh, you want to make 10 bucks an hour on painting a house in Watts? I said, sure. So, you know, we're, pre we're prepping the walls and, and Watts. And, and I think it, I had the, one of the first cell phones ever made it's like hundreds of dollars <clears throat> back then and it rang hello and he goes oh this is the answering service uh call uh, john picture uh, motion picture for john williams tomorrow 9 a.m mgm uh ewe i say okay and i say hey ron i'm sorry man i gotta i gotta get out of here i gotta I got a session with John Williams tomorrow. I got to get my electronics together. It's for Ewe is electronic wood. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And I had to plug all the stuff. I had to get my rig together and make sure everything worked. And, right, right. And I had to get there two hours early and plug so it all in. What type of Ewe did you have? Did you have like the a, first one? The I had one, the first one. The inventor made. You had the one that same one that Michael Brecker used to. The one no, the one before Michael Brecker. Oh. I had the you second had one ever Michael made. Brecker. He made three of them. <laughs> and Niall Steiner made actually four of them. 
the first one he worked, he that was his, mm-hmm. and then he made one for three other guys. And the guy that bought that one, I bought from him. And it had a little built-in three sounds in it. It was not MIDI, it was before MIDI. Mm-hmm. And that's what how, I... How, what was it? Like, how, if it wasn't MIDI... It was, was a little was box like built by hand that he'd made. Was it some type of, like, oscillator? Type yep, of it had triangle thing? wave, square wave, oh, okay. okay. Analog. So it was oscillators that were triggered It was analog by, synthesizer. By your breath in some way that he... But by the time I got this trade. call... For the movie, they went MIDI. MIDI was in, and the synthesizers had just come in. And we had to have a MIDI box that converted the analog to MIDI. To MIDI. That sounds. So we could hook up samplers and other synthesizers. Sounds like a nightmare. It is. It was a nightmare, and it took a lot of practice, a lot of figuring out how to do it. But we were paid handsomely for the effort, because you'd go in making double scale plus cartridge. So for working with John Williams, synthesizers that you could be like, well, I technically play X amount of sounds. So it's almost like you like, we we getting double. Yeah, but see, I was or... at the right place at the right time because the the, the Yamaha DX7 came in, and that's what everybody was playing on. But you couldn't play an expressive solo on the synth; you could only play keyboard parts. Mm. But if you wanted to. Trumpet-like sound, right, right. and it sounded like a trumpet, but did but weirder, synthy. Mm-hmm. There was a wind controller, and that's what Niall Steiner invented. That's why he came out with the electric windwind instrument mm-hmm. and the electric brass instrument, mm-hmm. e- valve instrument, right. EVI. Right, right. And so, even though there were synth players on the job, they still needed someone that could play a solo that sounded like a sax or wood bassoon mm-hmm. or that knew how to. That's why we they want needed us for that because mm-hmm. they want to write a sexy solo to be played on that, mm-hmm. and we do the work. So there was still room to make a ton of money. <laughs> so we make thousands coming in and so doing that work. In a session with John Williams, was he there? Actually? Yeah, sure. He wrote the music. It was an orchestra job, and there were two. There was an EVI by Judd Miller, who was one of the early guys in that field. He did a lot of work <clears throat> playing wooden flute sounds and stuff for the Karate Kid, you know. And then I was the second guy playing. I was playing tuba parts and contrabass clarinet stuff. At one time, I was playing all the woodwinds and that. That was the most money I ever made. I had to make a couple of grand in a double session with all that stuff. But man, I'd have to get there two or three hours early and set it all up and make sure it all worked. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. Anyway, that was, I went from rags, being a painter, to riches overnight. So what was the John Williams thing? I don't remember. No. It had to be in the 70s. Okay, it was before. Okay. So yeah. you feel like in the 80s, things significantly kind of changed in terms of like, Obviously, a lot less uh, studio work in the 80s and then the 90s. Well, I had a real slow period where my leaders died. I had some composers that was using me. They died. And or they left town or they... Mm-hmm. And whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and my theater work dried up and I had nothing. And... Uh, 
I was scuffling and uh, what's your advice for getting through those times where you have less work and it's it is well I did have jazz work I was playing in jazz clubs but it didn't pay enough but you can still I feel like a lot of musicians now are in that position especially in LA and it's like what is your advice for like trying to like push through those times and just like continuing to pursue it you know but like you also said it's also this being smart and finding other ways to make money besides music right which I think everyone would say is a smart thing to do. Yeah, I also learned how to master, how to be a mastering engineer. But I didn't do that for money. I did that for my record company because mm-hmm. I was tired of hiring all these people. And the same thing with the art. Mm-hmm. The art, You'd have to hire an art director. For, and they were expensive. So I figured out how to do that with computers, technology, Photoshop. The first version of that I bought. Was five hundred dollars, but I didn't have to hire an art director for five hundred an album. Uh-huh. So that was helpful. Growing like up with computers, well. yeah, as well. Thing is, there's always a way to make money. It just as long as you don't have to do it with music, then you can you use will. music as you know. You can use it to help you you know, for your brain, you know, you can develop. Right. And because when you make money, you can't always develop you. Well, I don't think it's the other things you don't want to have that pressure of being dependent on it. Right. You know, okay, let's go ahead and pause it here. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't,